Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Growing for Market magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author Lynn Bozinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier by farmers for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me. Today's show is also brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. Their quick-to-build and move come in a variety of styles and sizes and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friends' growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Buds, pour a cup of tea or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm, and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. In this episode of No-Till Flowers, we're talking to Laura Beth Resnick, who is the owner-operator of Butterbee Farm, located just outside of Baltimore. Laura Beth and I go into details like growing and structures. She has a lot of indoor growing space with two heated greenhouses and several tunnels. We also talk um, about perennial weed issues and how there's this myth that no-till farming will suddenly poof your weed issues, but that in actuality, um, perennial weeds become an even bigger problem. Then we also talk about machinery woes, what it's like to be a female trying to wrangle heavy equipment and how that got both of us more excited about no-till farming. 
And we also finally talk at the end a little bit about managing employees. This is a topic I wish we would have had time to go into even more detailed, but it just means there's future content for the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Laura Beth Resnick from Butterbee Farm. Let's get started. have Laura Beth Resnick from Butterbee Farm here today on the podcast to speak about her no-till flowers. Hi, Laura Beth. How are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. Glad yeah. to be here. Great. I'm excited to talk to you because you've been doing no-till flowers for a while now, I believe. How long have you been farming and um, how long have you been doing no-till with your farming practices? Yeah, well, we started the farm in 2013, so this is our eighth season growing, and we did no-till starting in our third season, I want to say, so I guess that's five five seasons, five seasons no-till. Okay, great. That's fantastic. There's not that many flower farmers that I know of, at least, who have been practicing no-till for that many years at this point, so it's ex- I'm excited to hear about your experiences from going from tilling to not tilling and how long that transition took and everything like that. But before we jump into that, why don't you just give us some of the basics about your farm, um, such as where exactly are you located and what growing zone are you in or any sort of specifics about your climate, like do you have really hot summers or really cold winters, anything like that? Mm, yeah. Okay. So this is where you get to complain about the weather, right? I'm <laughs> yes, ready. Absolutely. As all good farmers do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, we're in zone seven. We're right outside the city line of Baltimore. And that's really zone seven B technically. Um, we, let's see, we're on five acres, almost five acres. We grow about one and a half acres of annuals. And then the rest of the farm is kind of like spread out perennials, a lot, a lot of woodies that kind of thing, and a little bit of fallow land. But for the most part, we're actively on four to four and a half acres. Wow, that's a pretty big farm for a flower farm. Yeah, well, it's a lot of woodies. Um, you have that too, I think, right? Yes. So it's it feels like it's not that much because we don't actually spend that much time in some of those woodies. And a lot of them are new. Every year we put in new woodies. So there's always kind of a section of the farm that we don't really do much in other than weed. Right. But um, yeah, and I guess... Um, I really should go around with one of those little measuring things or I guess an app and just measure again to see exactly how many acres of annuals versus perennials we're doing. Cause you know, how when you start your farm, you have this information in the back of your head and then that's just the information you repeat for years. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So I think it's about an acre and a half of annuals. I guess I should measure that to be sure. But anyway, okay. so to answer your question about weather, we have really, really humid summers, super, super humid, super hot summers. It's not unusual for it to be a heat index of 105, 110, even on a really, really bad day. So that's kind of hard. And then in the winters, we get hard frost typically. So we'll have, you know, as low as like 15 or 20 degrees. So kind of extreme weather conditions throughout the year. And that must make it really challenging to manage some of the flowers that like a nice, long, cool spring and we just really don't have springs. You and I are similar zones here. I'm in Philadelphia and you're in Baltimore. So I know what that's like. And I, I can appreciate the challenges of trying to grow in that sort of extreme swing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So in the spring, we always have to be really aware that it might get really hot really fast. And we'll just basically lose all of our spring crops to that. 
which is part of why we started building tunnels, both unheated and heated, because we felt like we needed to extend that spring season to take advantage of Easter and Mother's Day and things that, you know, I mean, sometimes it gets so hot here that peonies are only blooming for like two or three weeks. And sometimes we have a longer spring and we have them for like four to six weeks. So it just kind of depends on the year. Yeah, a lot of fluctuation. So you mentioned that you have tunnels and greenhouses. So tell us exactly how much you have undercover, because I think you're also a bit more advanced in that area than a lot of newer growers, at least in the flower world, in terms of how much space you have undercover. Yeah, well, growing undercover is not for everyone. So I don't know if it's advanced or if it's just, you know, <laughs> like a life choice or what, but um, like, I, I don't necessarily recommend it. Although I do, I do love it. But as I was telling you before we started recording, we had some computer issues in the greenhouse. So now I'm kind of mad at winter growing. But anyways, <laughs> So we have two heated greenhouses. One is 30 by 96 and the other one is 32 by 126. So that one's quite large compared. They both have roof vents and the sides roll up and down. And then we have three unheated hoops that are, well, they're, one of them is bigger than the other. They're all 72 feet long. One is 30 feet wide and the other two are 21 feet wide. Wow. That is a lot of space undercover. And you're doing that mostly because you're trying to sell to florists primarily. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about how you do your sales channel. Yeah. So we mostly sell to florists. It has become a bigger percentage of our sales to florists every single year. And this year, especially with the pandemic, it just felt like that was a hundred percent the way to go for us. But um, basically we've sort of cultivated a really strong relationship with a handful of florists in our area. And most of our product goes to them. And then we have maybe a hundred other people who are on our availability list who might order here and there, maybe not every week, maybe only during wedding season. But the majority of our product really only goes to like 10 or fewer customers. And um, those are the people who really encouraged us to start growing in the winter because, you know, it's hard to find winter flowers around here. And a lot of our florists are really committed to local. Ellen Frost from Local Color Flowers is one of those people who really championed our winter growing. So it has sort of helped us form stronger bonds and like engender loyalty with our florists when we have things in the winter because they feel like we're doing this really great thing for them and then they want to buy even more from us in the summer. Yeah, I can imagine, especially if you can hit the ground running in early spring and have those flowers when maybe other growers in the area are just starting to have maybe, you know, 10 bunches of anemones, but you've already been cranking for a while. So you can actually show up with um, 20 or 30 bunches of something, even though, you know, the outdoor growers have it in season at the moment, but it's still not in the quantities or the quality that the florists are hoping for. So I can see a, yeah. a major advantage there. Plus you can probably hit things like Mother's Day and can you hit Valentine's Day? I guess you do with your heated space. Yeah, we did for the first time this year, actually. It was really fun and crazy and also kind of overwhelming. Like I purposely <laughs> didn't post on Instagram that we had anything because I knew we'd get inundated with like, well, where can, why can't I get it? Like, where is it right. from all of our floors? <laughs> had to be kind of secretive about how much stuff we had, which is kind of funny. There's actually you, you sell it all still then? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, right. So every we've only been winter growing for two full winter seasons now and both seasons I had to tell the people who were getting our product the earliest you know in late January and February not to tell anyone that they were getting product from us so <laughs> so that means there's that it's much like, demand so if other people yeah. can figure out how to master indoor heated growing then perhaps exactly. there's and I do think in in general for the floral industry and the local flower movement right now it is so important 
to master this indoor growing stuff um, so that we can provide year-round flowers into the marketplace. But I've always had personally a bit of a, a sort of, I don't want to say a moral hiccup there, but I worry about the sustainability of indoor growing. But that's for another podcast another <laughs> time, unless you have a, a strong retort to that. But I, I think it's also, we do need to have a local alternative come Valentine's Day in particular unless we can lobby to get Valentine's Day moved to July, which would be right, which would be amazing. (laughs) And that's definitely what we should do. 100%. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then do you do any direct to consumer sales, any retail essentially at all? Or you're 100% wholesale? We're not 100% wholesale. We do some bulk flowers for people who want to DIY their weddings, but we do not do any design work and we don't even make bunched bouquets or anything like that. So like every once in a while, a grocery store will be out to us about doing bouquets and we're always like nope we only sell bulk flowers you got to make them yourselves and the reason for that is because we don't want to compete with the florists who we sell to because that might be a bit of a conflict of interest so yeah we really mostly sell the florists and then we do these bulk diy flowers um, for sometimes up to 30 ish or so weddings a year wow and the new retail outlet that we have is a plant sale in the spring that this year because of covid because everyone wanted to have a garden was crazy bananas so that was our second year doing it. We're going to do it again next spring as well. And that is direct to consumer, but it's all plants. Okay. So it doesn't compete with the florist then. So you kind of feel like you have a Yeah, exactly. We're growing all those seedlings for ourselves anyway. So why not grow a few extra and sell them to the public? Right. Yeah. I've done that here at my farm and it's super popular. I think it's a fantastic um, spring cash boost for growers who have some space to start a few extra things, or you can even buy in plug trays. Um, of stuff you were going to get, say, from uh, Farmer Bailey's or Grow and Sell or one of those places, and maybe you can't use the full minimum of trays that they always require, and then you can pot those up and sell them as plant starts to people in your local area, especially when I was first going to farmer's markets. I did that um, as a way to just be able to sort of float the cost (laughs) of buying a a tray of, you know, 218 Lysianthus or whatever when I only wanted 100 of them. Yeah, that's a great idea. It it worked out really, really well. Um, But I should say for the record, at least in Pennsylvania, you're supposed to have a a license for selling plants. So before we encourage anybody to to start selling plants um, without the proper documentation. So let me ask you, though, Laura Beth, why did you decide to never do any design work? Because that's really or not. I mean, not even design work, but it sounds like you didn't even try all the typical uh, beginner shots in the dark, so to speak, where most most new flower farmers are going to farmers markets or trying to start a CSA or do something where they're at least putting bouquets together. And it sounds like you didn't even, did you try that ever? Or you just decided straight out of the gate, like, I don't want to design? We did try it for a second. Our first year, we had a tiny little CSA that was, you know, little tiny bunches. And then the second year, we, make, we switched our CSA to just both flowers in buckets and we had a CSA for like three or four years that was that it was just bulk flowers in buckets people designed when they got the flowers home and then there was a florist who did want mixed bunches from us I remember doing this like one time we had no system set up and at that time we also didn't have any structures at all we had a shed we had no tunnel we had no barn we had nowhere to make the bouquets and I remember it being like really like awkward we were like where do we 
trim the stems? Like, what do we do with the foliage we're stripping? Like, it was just like a lot. <laughs> we're not right. ready for it. <laughs> yeah. And the bouquets were not pretty. I think there was maybe some borage and paprika yarrow and it just looked terrible. Oh, wow. But, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't think about it too much. It's okay, not going to go anywhere good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So after that, we, we just kind of felt like it wasn't something we were great at. I think that was the first thing. And then the second thing is, I mentioned Ellen already, but we have this really close relationship in particular with Ellen from Local Color Flowers. And it became clear almost immediately when we started working with her that we were really grow good at growing stuff and she was really good at designing stuff. And it seemed kind of redundant for each of us to do the thing the other was doing, like better for us to excel in growing the flowers and for Ellen to excel at designing them. And we can collaborate and support each other and help advertise each other. And then you know, neither of us has to do the work of the thing that we're not very good at. So yeah, that's definitely. kind of how that worked out. Yeah, I think that's a, I, I talk about your relationship with Ellen all the time to other new flower farmers whenever they're asking me for advice about how to approach florists. And do I think that florists are really going to want the flowers that they're growing? And I think that's your, your model there with Ellen is so precious and, and, really well streamlined at this point. You guys have been doing this for so many seasons together. And I think it is such a fantastic example of what we can all achieve together with designers. So I love it. I applaud you guys all the time. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's, you know, she's amazing. She's really been the one. She's kind of like a mentor and a friend. So I feel like I'm just following her lead. Yeah. But I will say that I've learned a lot about, um, I want do you, do you know Brene Brown, that the vulnerability lady? No, I don't. Oh my God, Jenny, Brene Brown. She's okay. a queen. I'll look okay, her up. so she's, yeah, <laughs> she's written all these books about vulnerability and leadership and vulnerability in relationships and just basically all these different, I, I think therapists recommend her work a lot to patients. She's amazing. She's okay. got a podcast, she's got a Netflix show, she's got it all. But anyway, Brene Brown talks a lot about vulnerability in relationships. And I feel like that um, working with Ellen in particular, and then with all of our other florists, we now have good relationships with too. It's something I always have in the back of my mind is how, how vulnerability sort of like strengthens our relationships in a way that is kind of counterintuitive. Like you would think that, for example, apologizing for something that you brought that looks bad might feel really horrible and like, ugh, you don't want to do that. But when you do it really sincerely and authentically, it opens the door for these like stronger relationships you know so I don't yeah. know that's like very abstract but no I, I love that and I'll definitely I'm going to look up Renee Brown and we'll put a link in the show notes so that um, anybody else who's <laughs> as clueless as me can find out more <laughs> enjoy enjoy <laughs> yeah it sounds fantastic and I do think it I I don't know her her work as of yet but I would suspect that maybe it hits upon one of the core challenges I see a lot of new flower growers struggle with is confidence and feeling like they need everything to be perfect before they launch into the world, no doubt for fear of being vulnerable. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the things that we can all really help each other understand and learn as an industry is how to move forward with knowing that things aren't perfect. Nothing in farming is perfect, right? It's always um, a little bit of a battleground between 
the yin and the yang and trying to, uh, I always like, you know, just tap into the concept of wabi-sabi. <laughs> Everything is. Yes, I love wabi-sabi. <laughs> so at least yes. that's how I, I manage my own farm is knowing that there will be a lot of cracks in the, in the surface, but it's okay because the cracks are where the light gets in. Um, and that's how we all grow one way or the other. So um, speaking of growing, before we we really went down the selling channel, before we went to the growing channel, which is what I mostly wanted to um, tap into, and then we can come back to sales. But before I get off track too much, tell me a little bit more. The land that you're on now, you're renting that land. Is that correct? Yes, we lease our land. Okay, okay. And have you ever wanted to own your own land? That's a good way to put it. Have I ever wanted to own it? Um, no, actually, we never okay. really did. We and my husband and I, I started the farm a year before I met him. So I think at that time, I it just didn't even, it felt so impossible. And I don't recommend this now, but I had this idea at the time that loans and like debt are not good and that I shouldn't have it. So I was always like, well, I don't have money and I don't want to have debt. So I can't buy land. I just can't. So I'm going to lease land and that's going to be my future. And I never really considered any other way about it, you know? Right. So I, and like I said, I don't really recommend that now looking back, I think we could have grown our business and had a higher quality product earlier, much earlier, if we had taken out loans to get the equipment that we needed much earlier. So, you know, it's pros and cons, I guess. But anyways, so we lease our land. We found this site that is owned by an old, old family friend. Actually, we just got very lucky. So like I said, it's in Baltimore County, which is just over the land we're on is just over the city line. So we're only a 15 minute drive from downtown Baltimore and about a 50 minute drive from downtown BC. So wow. the markets that we have access to are really, really good, strong markets. So that's been a great plus. Um, and we are actually, this is a little bit scary. You're not going to like this, but we're on a three year lease that Ooh. renews. Um, I know. And we actually Whoa. just renewed it to be four years. Yeah. So Wow. So wait, how does, frightening. yeah. So tell me like, so I know in the veggie world, people don't mind being on leased land too much because they're usually planting just annual crops and they can kind of pick up a, the farm and move as needed over each winter. I mean, not that you want to do that, obviously, for soil structure and health and so forth, but it isn't the end of the world to move um, a small veggie operation, but to move the kind of operation you have with your farm and in general, I've never wanted to move my farm because of all the perennials that I have, but not only do you have woodies and perennials, but you've got all these structures. So how do you feel confident enough to build that much equity into that land? And I don't know what's right or wrong at all. I'm just curious because I think that's a model that a lot of people haven't explored yet. So it sounds like it's working for you though. Right now. Yeah. It's definitely scary. I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's no really great confidence. I don't have great confidence in us being here until we retire, which is what we'd like to do. So I mean, just because you never know what will happen. On the other hand, we have the best possible situation with our landlords. We work for them. We're the groundskeepers for the property. So we live in the groundskeeper's house as part of our job. So we're very established here. You know, they kind of need us to take care of the property. And um, the two groundskeepers who worked for them before were both here on the property for 30 years each. And everyone in the family is very proud of that. So we feel like we're in the best possible scenario we could be to lease land. And then there are some um, sort of like safety clauses in the lease. So we have a four-year lease. And if they want to ask us to leave, they have to give us a full year to exit, which is really helpful for us because we do have all these structures. So it would probably take some time to figure out how to move them. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. But when, but when we did, we built the greenhouses, we did some math, you know, we did some math and did some projections to see how quickly we felt we could start making a profit on the greenhouses, given how long our lease is, you know, cause like, we didn't want to say, we didn't want to build a greenhouse if it would take us 10 years to make a profit. That doesn't make any sense. Cause we might right. have to leave before that. Yeah. Right. So we were like, all right, we can make the money back that we spent building the greenhouse within two years. And after that, we're making significant profit. profits. And so that felt worth it. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, you might as well. And then if you had to move the greenhouse, that doesn't sound like much fun at all, but at least you would, <laughs> it is possible. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, cool. And so let's talk a little bit more about your no-till practices in particular, because this podcast is supposed to be all about exploring natural ways of growing and working with nature and not against it, not trying to bully nature into doing what you want it to do, but working with the natural flow of things. So why did you, so you said you started out tilling, but then you moved to no-till. So you tell me, A, why you started with tillage, and then B, why did you make the transition? Yeah, well, we started tilling because we didn't know any better. We just, I had worked on some organic vegetable farms up and down the East Coast before I started my own farm, and everybody I was working for used big tractors, so that was what I was going to do. And we, uh, we started farming on this property with almost no equipment. I mean, I think we literally had like two shovels and like some buckets and <laughs> a shed that we hauled from my parents' house that was like half falling down. And those, those were all the tools that we had. So we started, quote, tilling with shovels, which isn't really tilling, but we had uh, like 20 friends come out and help us literally break sod with shovels, just like build beds using shovels. Wow. It was terrible. It didn't really work. It was fine, but I'm never going back there. Right. And then one day we looked up from our work and Mr. Bill, who was the groundskeeper on this property before us, had left this little red rototiller by our shed. Later, he said he said it was because he felt bad for us because he saw us <laughs> out here with shovels and was like, this is not okay. So he bought a used little rototiller from a friend. It was like the sweetest thing ever. So we started using that. So obviously we were, t- we were tilling for about one year. And then my husband just somehow stumbled across John Martin Fortier from the market gardener, the market gardener, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's got a whole bunch of YouTube videos actually that I think came out even before the book, possibly. I'm not sure what the order of operations was, but anyway, we got really into YouTube videos. And honestly, for me, the biggest appeal was not the eco-friendly nature of no-till farming. It was really that I do not like working with machines. I'm not good at it. I did not grow up understanding how to do it. I can barely change a tire on my car if I need to, which is embarrassing and not said it to the public, but I just, I'm not good. It's not my thing. I hate it. So the idea of not having to use tractors or, you know, I guess any kind of implement that I might have to fix in the middle of my workday really appealed to me. And that's why I got on board so fast. And then, of course, the eco-friendly nature of the whole thing kind of was also really appealing. I love that you mentioned that, that it is part of the fact that you don't have to have machinery at your farm, because when I started no-till, I've been, I'm in my third season now. The reason I started wasn't because of ecological mindfulness or anything like that. It was simply because it started raining um, and didn't stop raining. So I couldn't get my tractor and tiller into the ground. But then what I, I realized after even just one season of not having to hook up my three-point hitch to my tiller and have to worry about the tires on the tractor getting deflated and 
you know, oh, did I have the oil for this and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh my gosh, I love not turning on an engine. Like it's one of my favorite things about no-till is that I don't mm -hmm. have to turn on any engines and then I don't have to maintain anything. Like I got rid of the tiller. I got rid of the tractor. It's fantastic. I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> and I think it's something people don't realize is such a nice perk of no-till, especially as female farmers. I think there's not a lot of equipment out there really designed for us yet. I know people are working on good machinery for female farmers, but it's hard to wrangle those big things that were designed for big men. Um, and it's nice that no-till um, flower farming in particular is so perfectly situated um, for female farmers, I feel like. Do you feel that way too? Oh, 100%. And in addition to feeling like it's just better for my body not to be working with big tractors. Also something that I've come across a lot in the process of building greenhouses and tunnels is that a lot of the companies where I'm buying the equipment from the greenhouse structure, the plastic, all, the computers, all those things are run by men who are used to working with men. And I have experienced too much misogyny when trying yeah. to approach these companies to get, to give them my business. And it, I feel it's the same way in the farming world with, you know, people who sell tractors or people who fix tractors, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are great and not misogynistic at all, but in my experience, it hasn't been great. And I just don't want to deal with it. I'd rather be self-sufficient and not have to go to those people at all. Yeah. So I totally agree. Even just getting like my lawnmower fixed is a hassle because you, you go into the shop and it's all guys and they assume that I know nothing about um, anything, basically, <laughs> which I actually do know. I know how to change my own oil and I know how to put a chain on and all of these things. But there's things that I can't fix myself. And um, I just get really tired of that, that uh, sort of attitude that comes with trying to be a woman in a machinery world. So I, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. So, yep. <laughs> yep. so all right. So that was one of the reasons you started um, no-till. And then did you transition the farm all at once to no-till or was it a slow process? It was pretty much overnight. We watched all the videos. We were like, all we need to get is a whole bunch of tarps. And it would really help to buy a BCS walk behind. I realized we just spent a long time talking about how much we hate machinery, but we did actually <laughs> buy the, the BCS tractor. And, we, and I do love it. I really do. That is a very female friendly machine. Um, so, so, and you don't have to have a tractor, a BCS tractor to do no-till at all. Um, it was more, it was more that we really wanted to grow in raised beds and um, not the raised beds that have some kind of container, but actually just mounted beds, you know, so we felt like having a rotary plow where we could flip up the soil onto the bed to raise them up would be kind of important. So we wouldn't have to be doing all that work with shovels. With shovels, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what we did is we bought some silage sharps, we bought rock bags, and we have a ton of rocks on the farm. So that was no problem at all. And then we bought the BCS and, and we went from there. So why did you decide on mounded beds, though? Yeah, well you know, cut flowers really like to have dry feet. Um, we actually, I'm a chronic underwaterer and I have found that like my ideas about how much water plants need is not really true. Like I, one year, like you said, it, maybe it was the same year we're talking about. It rained like every day. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 2018, it rained yeah. every day forever. It was terrible. Yeah. We never had dry clothes. I'm sure it was the same for you, but yeah, but that year our dahlias did just fine with all that water. And I was like, Oh my gosh, we should be watering our dahlias more. So so the idea of flowers needing dry feet was something I had in my head. And I think it is true that they really like a lot of good drainage. 
But um, anyway, that was kind of like the inspiration for, oh yeah. And then also Jean-Martin Portier just like really recommends it. And we wanted to do okay. everything he was doing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I started with mounded beds um, in my perennial section, but then it was such a pain in the butt to make the mounded beds that I stopped doing them. And the, the rest of my farm is just straight flat in the ground. Um, and I've really noticed no difference between the two formats. So I, I'm always curious when somebody says they're still doing, not that you're still doing mounted beds, but you know, um, not that one way or the other is better, <laughs> but I always like to hear the logic for why. Um, yeah choose to go to the extra work of mounding their beds and the reason I did it yeah I did it too for the same reason everybody always said they need dry feet but um I in the flatbeds I I don't see any difference I think it's about drainage in general and as long as you have decently draining soil then it's fine as far as I can tell but yeah I think that's absolutely true the the one other thing and I'm again it maybe it wouldn't matter but your farm is super flat as at least that's how oh, it yeah, looked when it, it is. came. Yeah. yeah. So our, I don't know if you remember, but our farm is on a super slope. Like that's all of true. our tunnels look like they're about to slip down into <laughs> a ravine <laughs> on such a plant. So we also felt like having the raised beds would help with sort of guiding the water down the hill in a way that we actually wanted to go. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, and so how is it, is no-till really helpful that you're on a slope? That sounds like that. I didn't even think about it. I know that your farm is very sloped and I hadn't really thought about how, you know, employing no-till probably really helps um, ease erosion and also just makes it easier to work in the space versus taking in a tractor or something. Yes, exactly. Right. So some there are some parts of our farm where it's really scary to be even using the BCS, let alone a riding tractor. So yeah, it's, it's really nice not to have to deal with that. The, the BCS, we, we do take into the field a fair amount, but we don't remake our beds every year. Like they are not super high raised beds. Like okay. we kind of raise them once and then every three years we go back and we'll flip the soil up. But the implement that we do use on a regular basis in the field is a flail mower. And that is pretty on the BCS, pretty easy to maneuver on the crazy slope that we have. So, um, yeah, I, I really like using the flail and it's actually, I want to talk to you about this because I yeah. think, I'm, do you have a flail mower? I do not. I use a mulching push mower. Okay. So when you, okay. When your beds are done, what are you doing to flip the bed? Are you pulling all the plant material out or are nope. you, nope. okay. We, yeah. What are you doing? We run the mulching mower over it. If it's a, so right now we're literally as, as you and I are recording this <laughs> podcast, um, my crew is flipping dahlias where the the frost came and the dahlias are done. And now we need to put the dahlias to bed. And so what we do is run the mulching mower over it if they're not too big. Um, if they're too big, then we have to use um, loppers or something to cut them down at the base. But generally speaking, any beds that we're flipping, um, if the plant material can go through a mulching push mower, we just mulch push mow. Um, if it can't go through that, then we cut the plants at the base with snips or um, pruners or whatever. And then um, if we want to reuse the bed right away, uh, we take the plant material off the bed and put it on the compost pile. But a lot of times we'll just put a tarp over it and let it break down. Um, so with the dahlias, we're just cutting them, leaving the material in place piling leaves on top and then putting tarps over that for the winter so we don't even have to take the t the plant debris off so what do mm -hmm. you but That's, with a flail yeah. mower you can can you plant right away with a flail mower 
No, I think it sounds to me like the flail and your push mower are the same. Like they do the same thing. Well, the reason okay. I like the flail as opposed to just a regular mower that's not a mulching mower is that it leaves the plant material right in the bed, which is what we want, right? Right. Yeah. So I think they I think they do the same thing basically. So okay. wait, okay. So super nitty gritty Dahlia question though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is my first year officially overwintering dahlias. We did a trial last year and it was awesome and like forever we're gonna do that. Uh-huh. But um I was talking to Mima from Urban Buds about it, and she was saying that maybe I should consider not leaving the dahlia foliage in the beds because dahlias tend to have a lot of disease issues. Have you had any problems with that? So um, in my experience, that is not that big of an issue because I'm leaving the, the plant material in place because the dahlias work so hard to pull up all the appropriate minerals and nutrients all season to put into their, their foliage and their stems. By removing that from the planting bed, I'm denying them all the hard work that they did. You know, it's sort of like a, a king going in and taking the the straw from the surf farmers or whatever. <laughs> um, but also for me, my dahlias do not get diseases anymore. And what's beautiful about that is because they are perennialized and they're no-till. And maybe at some point I should do a, a dahlia no-till podcast. <laughs> but um they, my, my dahlias have been in the ground for five years without being disturbed. And as a result, each year they have just gotten stronger and healthier. So even this year, which was an absolute disaster of a dahlia year, was it bad for you guys down there too? Because the- No, opposite. We had the best dahlia year we've ever had. Okay. Okay. Wait, why was it bad for you? What happened? Because we got a freeze on Mother's Day here at my farm oh, okay, and it, yeah. it totally um, blackened the new growth. Um, and because my dahlias come up early in the year, my dahlias are already about a foot tall or higher by Mother's Day. So that we lost a lot of growth because of that. And then we went into an incredibly long, humid, sustained, hot summer. Um, so dahlias do not want to grow over 85 degrees. So that was pretty much our whole summer this year. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We, well, we had the same summer too. That's interesting. Yeah. So the difference for us was that we had a terrible cucumber beetle year last year uh-huh. and we were, tr- we try not to spray at anything at all in the field. We right. Just kind of, we're like, we'll spray organic stuff in the tunnels, but we're not going to do it in the field. But last year we lost more than half of our crop to cucumber beetle and it was oh, like wow. devastating. Yeah. It was terrible. So then this year I was like, I'm ready to go. I got my Pyganic. Like I'm going to do it if I have to. And then there were no cucumber beetles. So right. we had like an amazing Dahlia year. Well, the reason you're not seeing cucumber beetles is because when, and they were in the ground last year, right? The ones that you're talking about. Yeah. 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 So I have noticed that cucumber beetles just kind of disappear once you perennialize dahlias. It's phenomenal. That is so weird. The only time I have cucumber beetles anymore is in the late fall, the very late fall. So right before frost, there'll be like a final flush, I guess, another generation of cucumber beetles. And um, they come into the dahlias then because the dahlias are losing their, their, you know, life force, so to speak, and they're getting weaker. But while the dahlias are strong, in the middle of the year, the cucumber beetles want nothing to do with them. So my goal for next year is to actually start a database of the, um, to start doing um, a BRICS index on it to take a measuring of the sugars in the leaves. And I think that what's happening is it's been noted. um, I I learned this through the no-till podcast with Jesse that at a certain BRICS level, uh, beetles don't want to eat the plant. 
So once the sugar content is high enough in the plant, and the sugar content meaning that, you know, the, the plant is just photosynthesizing at a great rate, it's healthy, it's happy, it's got everything that it needs, then mm. beetles aren't interested in them, you know, and a lot of pests aren't interested in them. And that's what I've seen most, absolutely the most of in my dahlias, you know, I'm trying to get the rest of my field to that space, that sort of healthy, happy um, ecosystem space, but my dahlias are the ones that have been um, no-till for the longest by default because I just don't dig them, and and they are phenomenal. We we just don't have any pests, we don't have any diseases in there, um, and that's why to to go back to the original query was that um, should we leave the plant material in the beds? Well, my plant material is super healthy, so there's nothing mm -hmm. that right. I'm worried about dropping into the bed and letting fester there. Yeah. Okay. That's a good tip. And then I also feel pretty, I feel pretty strongly too, that the, um, the ecology of letting the, the plant material, and then we pile on leaves and straw over top of that. We also add amendments and so forth. And then tarp, I think the ecology that's in the soil there over the winter is so strong and so healthy um, that it's really combating some of the, the weaker disease issues. Obviously, something like um, crown gall, you're not solving that, <laughs> mm -hmm. no matter what you do. <laughs> um, you just have to keep an eye out for that. But in terms of things like powdery mildew or so, so on and so forth, I don't think they're going to hang out with that ecology for that long. Hmm. Um, okay. And I've also started using um, Korean natural farming um, amendments and sprays to the beds so that really helps a lot too in terms of diseases so oh you definitely need to do a podcast about that okay i wish right. i could talk about that but i don't even know what you're saying so <laughs> well, i'll just listen I'm, to that one wait, you're in luck uh denise and tony gets from bear mountain flowers yes is, um they're doing a whole podcast about knf with me like i'm interviewing them for um, oh, i can't KNF, wait so um so tune in for that mm -hmm. um, that's good stuff yeah so but what i wanted to know maybe most from you because i know you've been doing this for so long and you're in the same zone as i am when you were talking about bed prep a little earlier what tell me more about your bed prep in terms of i feel like you're really good at direct seeding um and getting things started in the field and i've only this is only my third season with no-till and i feel like i'm still sort of sputtering a little bit in terms of if we do transplants, it's no problem out into the beds. But I'm wondering if it is that I'm only in my third season and I need a little bit more of that no-till goodness, you know, coming through. Maybe next year I'll be really churning. Um, or is it something that you're doing there with your beds that you're able to do a good job direct seeding? And how are you direct seeding? So tell me more about your bed prep. Mm, okay. Yeah, well, I feel like we don't actually direct seed that many things. We do all of our cool flowers direct seeded, of course, and then we'll do amaranth direct seeded. That's pretty much the only thing. Oh, and saponaria, I guess, in the summer. But otherwise, we're, we're doing transplants for everything else. So I'm not sure if maybe you thought I did more or if that sounds like a lot. I'm well, sure. I think, yeah, I think with the cool annuals, that's such a big piece of the puzzle um, for flower farmers. And I think a lot of new flower farmers in particular struggle with getting good germination mm, okay. on their cool annuals because that's, you know, you just have to... It's not hard if you're tilling because then you can till and make this nice loamy bed and then it's not so bad. But if you're mm -hmm. not tilling, how do you get a nice seed bed for all those cool annuals okay. like Larkspur and Bachelor Buttons and Nigella and so forth? Sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, right. So for some reason, I really, I feel like we haven't struggled too much with germination on those things. So I will share what we do. So in the fall, 
we want to have beds that are basically ready to go when we're when we need them. So we have an area that we're going to fall seed that is tarped for the whole summer. It's just like that's usually um, it'll be something that bloomed in the spring or it'll be an area that's just been seeded with winter rye. And in the spring it's flail mode. And then we put a tarp on it and then all summer long, there's a tarp down. So there's beds waiting for us for a long, long time before we're actually ready to use them. And then in early September, we'll pull the tarp off and we'll go ahead and broad fork and prep the bed just like we would for any of our other beds in our tunnels or in the summer in the field. So we'll go through and broad fork, we'll spread uh, chicken fertilizer. We use the Harmony Harvest, uh, I think it's like five, three, four. And so we'll spread that and then we'll do a little scuffle hoe to break up any big chunks that formed while we were broad forking. And then we'll make trenches using a triangle hoe just shallow trenches. We, we do, we have four foot wide beds. So we do five trenches per bed. So that's like basically five rows of direct seeded things. And then we'll direct seed, irrigate or let it rain and then put remay down. And I honestly think the remay is probably, this is probably not related to no-till at all. It's probably just <laughs> the remay that is like the key, yeah. but the remay helps with germination because it keeps the humidity in, keeps the water in. Yeah. So if you are going to get really sunny days for like seven days in a row after that, then the remain helps make sure that your stuff is actually going to germinate. Yeah. So in my head, in this zone anyway, we have to direct seed between mid-September and mid-October in order to get good germination. So we just do have to do it sometime within that window. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the remay because I think I've found that is really critical to to success with direct seeding. I think it's most, I mean, I agree with the humidity um, and it keeps the ground a little bit warmer, but I also, two things I think that contribute are um, there's not as much bird predation, like birds love to come by and pick up the seeds that I swear mm -hmm. they're watching me from the trees whenever I'm direct seeding. <laughs> and then also um, if you do get a heavy rain, that remay keeps the heavy rain from washing away all the seeds if there was um, a, a quick heavy rain after that. So, yeah. Um, and do you, when you say you irrigate, are you doing drip tape for that? Are you doing overhead watering? What's your irrigation after direct seeding? Yeah, we use drip tape. We use a fire hydrant actually to irrigate the whole farm. It's kind of weird. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's, it's strange. The property is right in a suburban neighborhood and, um, but because this is a really old estate that the farm is on, our water, our city water for like our house and our landlord's house comes from really, really far away. And there's like a lot of leaks and it just like isn't a great situation for us to hook up to that. I don't think the water pressure would be very good. So actually one of the first things I noticed when I visited this property for the first time, like eight years ago, was that there was a fire hydrant right on the street and I called the, the county and they were like, yeah, you can just rent a meter. So that's what we do. We have a meter on the hydrant and um, oh, wow. We have a key, a hydrant key, that's basically just a big wrench to turn on and, and off the hydrant. So we have great water pressure and there's a main line that's hooked to it and we have some valves that will, you know, send the water to different fields or different tunnels. Oh, wow. That sounds like a fantastic system and I'm envious of your pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's awesome in the summer. It's so good. It is a huge challenge in the winter because the meter that goes onto the hydrant is heavy and cumbersome and it has like, needs to be very securely fastened. But if it's freezing, you have to remove it because any kind of water can turn into ice and crack the meter and you have to pay $500 to replace it, which oh I know because I've had to. So wow. anyway, basically we can't water in the winter is what this comes down to. So in our greenhouses, we have to use literally buckets of water and watering cans. So what? pros and cons. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that's what you were doing. In the <laughs> I know. 
That's crazy. We are super janky around here. Yeah. Wow. That's well, do you have a plan to come up with another system for the greenhouses or are you just going to keep rolling with that? I mean, if it works, that's fine. I was just Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, we looked into digging a well because there's actually grant money oh through USDA to do that. But after two seasons winter growing, we realized we barely need to water in the winter at all. In fact, there's certain beds that are, you know, the ones that are on the outsides of the tunnels that every time it rains, get some soaking. So those beds, we don't water at all. Ever oh, wow. in the winter, not once. So they can go like six months without water. And then the ones in the middle, maybe we'll hand water one time in the winter. But if we give them a good water in the fall, they really don't seem to need it in the winter at all. So oh, it's wow. it has, it's annoying for crate growing in particular because crates dry out a lot faster than beds. So we either have to like haul them by hand outside to get rained on or bring watering cans. And that's like a whole pain. But um, yeah, so it's like kind of tricky and annoying. Or for example, we want to do hanging pots in our greenhouses of, you know, rosemary or ferns or things like that. But we can't because we have no way to water them just by turning on a spigot. And we can't like turn on a hose, you know, so. So, but what do you do for water for your harvest buckets? Do you, is that another system or you, it's all on the hydrant? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, no, no. Oh my God, that would that's what I was thinking. I was like, wow, you're terrible. harvesting and just up in buckets. No. Wow. No, 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 no. So yeah. So the, the house that we live in, the groundskeeper's house does have water. It just comes from like all the way through the woods. And gotcha. there is a pump that's right by our house that we use to fill all of our buckets. So there, okay. thankfully we do have water. And that's also the water that we use to water our propagation house. So we don't have to turn on the hydrant every time we want to water, which would be another, that would be a huge pain. Right. So we have water where we really, really need it to be convenient. Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. Yeah, I feel like water is one of those things that we flower farmers need to talk about more than veggie farmers or so forth, because I think one of the things that a lot of newer flower farmers don't realize is it's not just about irrigation water, but I think we actually go through more water here at my farm just filling buckets for harvesting than we do for anything else. So. Oh, for sure. I mean, all kinds of things. During hairy ball season, we have to spray down hairy balls after harvest because they're covered oh, wow. in that weird goo, you know? So like, <laughs> yeah, we use water for everything. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something people need to think about if they're going to start a flower farm. Um, really, water is so critical, so much more critical than starting a veggie garden or something like that. I mean, it, without without being able to fill buckets of water quickly and efficiently, because, you know, every every bucket 
takes at least a gallon of water in terms of a harvest bucket. Um, some more or less depending on what you're, you're working with. But um, if you have to schlep that water very far or if you've got low water pressure, you're going to just be spending forever just trying to get enough water to just fill in buckets yep. right so <laughs> something to remember kids who yes are exactly so um let's talk wait, a little wait, wait. can i tell oh, yeah, you yeah. a mistake that i made with cool flowers oh yeah, yeah. i here? love mistakes tell let's me talk about mistakes let's okay talk. so this is the first time we ever did this and i will never do it again okay but just because of the way we are trying to rotate our fields because of some issues we were having with flooding and other things we needed to direct seed our cool flowers in the same place where we had cool flowers this spring. So basically the spring flowers were mowed, tarped, and then we direct seeded right into those same beds in the fall. You know, okay. we rotated what crops yeah. were going in. So like right. we had larkspur where the bupleurum was and bupleurum where the larkspur was, you know, like that kind of thing. But um, what happened was those things had reseeded so well and so strongly and effectively that now we have basically a carpet of bupleurum where there's supposed to be larkspur. <laughs> Yeah. And vice oh, versa. No. And it's like, we don't know what to do because like, normally we don't thin our direct, our cool flowers because we've direct seeded them in such a way that they're thinned how we want them to be thin. You know, like normally we don't do any of that. Right. So now we're like, well, we, we have to thin them because they're going to outcompete each other and be tiny and wimpy and that's no good. Or like, I don't know. I don't, I think we're just going to have to do it. It's going to take like 20,000 hours. That sounds horrible. But what I'm wondering is, is there an interesting silver lining to learn here. I don't know. I guess you'd have to do this as an experiment over and over, but is that a way to just sort of perennialize cool annuals to like do what you did on purpose instead right. of, yeah. instead of sowing new seeds, you just um, let, let the last flush of larkspur say go to seed right. and then tarp it and then just pull the tarp off and voila, you have a yeah. stand well, of larkspur. Right. That's exactly right. If we had not added more seed, we would have had like this amazing stand, right? That would have needed yeah. to thin because it's too thick, but, but right. It, that would have been better. <laughs> but, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm all about what I call lazy farming, which just yes, means exactly. farming smarter. Um, and so I think that that's a really interesting idea, which I might have to try purposefully next year because it's yeah, something it that out. you couldn't achieve in a tillage system necessarily without, I mean, maybe it would kind of work in a tillage mm, system. Probably but, not. Not yeah. as well. But the yeah. way you're doing it with the, with the no-till that, that kind of, you know, and, and you're smothering out weeds all season during the summer. So right. all you got to do is just take the tarp off and there you go. <laughs> Let it rain. I know. Yeah. Oh, I love oh, it. I'm so frustrated. Oh, and I should add, we actually did broad fork too. So even though we broad forked and like scuffled yeah. and added fertilizer, yeah. those seeds still came it's up. Still yeah. yeah. I found, I found that broad forking, like we broad fork our dahlias and we broad fork, um, we have perennialized ranunculus in the hoop house. So it's just coming. Wait, sorry. You broad fork your dahlias? The I do. Yeah. Um, from the side. So um, because they're perennialized, I started having drainage issues um, oh. in terms of just, you know, soil settles over time. Um, and I didn't want to dig. So the dahlias are no dig and they've been in the ground for five years. Um, so we uh, take a broad fork from the side and just huh. wiggle it, wiggle it in. Like it doesn't, uh -huh. it doesn't hit the tubers. Um and it just creates channels for the water, you know, to get down through, um, creates air space for, um, you know, worms and all the invertebrates in the soil to be able to come and go. Um, we've found that that just really helps over a lot of people think that over time, dahlias, 
if left in the ground, will uh, suffocate themselves, you know, in the way that um, like perennials that grow too mm -hmm. dense and tightly. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting, I mean, again, I, my whole farm is an experiment in many ways for me, which I love. It's one of my favorite things about farming is that you just sit and observe nature um, and then work with her instead of against her. So for whatever reason, everybody's always said, you must dig your dahlias and you must remove the foliage and all these things um, to which I'm finding is not true. And so I was realizing that I don't think the dahlias smother themselves out. I think what happens is the soil gets too settled, not mm -hmm. even compacted. Like I think we should stop using the word compacted because I think that leads people to think of only driving a tractor over something or walking on something and that causes compaction. My beds are not compacted, they're just settled. And so when soil settles, then the air isn't flowing as well and the drainage isn't as good. So by just inserting a broad fork in there and wiggling it around a little bit, um, that opens up air spaces in the soil hmm. again. So that that's really interesting. Really helping with their long term um, health. So, yeah. Um, but what I was going to hmm. what I was going to say is I don't think broad forking is that disruptive to a bed, you know, the way you're saying with the cool annuals reseeding themselves, even though you, you broad forked, um, it's not, you know, it's not turning over the soil. And I don't think plants even really mind, you know, they, they're fine with it basically. So apparently just fine. Good yeah. to go. I'm I, yeah. So I, I <laughs> yeah. love, you've just given me like a whole new experiment to try with the cool. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. I'll send you some pictures. It's yeah. pretty overwhelming. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for you. In this moment, I know exactly. But maybe we've both learned something that will yeah, really help okay. make farming easy next year. So yeah, mistakes it, are good. Yada, yada, yeah, yada. Yeah. Take it, take it in the back <laughs> of your brain. So, right. um, so let me ask you with your no-till flower beds, you are just relying simply on tarping. Do you use um, any sort of other weed suppression in terms of newspaper, cardboard, uh, deep mulch, anything, or do you just rely on tarps to be sort of your 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 tool of choice in terms mm -hmm. of beds? Well, funny you should ask. So the other <laughs> big mistake that we, well, I don't know. Okay. So the big problem we're having with no-till uh, that I actually I need to yeah. listen to like every episode of the podcast. To yeah. Try I want to talk about the problems of no-till because there are definitely yeah. problems of no-till. Absolutely. Yes. The pros and cons. So the big problem we're having. So our farm is surrounded by basically like a bank of invasive weeds. So we have thistle, we've got dock, we've got bindweed, we've got wow. mile a minute, we've got chickweed, like literally every bad horribly invasive weed that there is we have on the farm and so when that bank of invasives for acres around the farm flowers there's really nothing we can do about the seeds landing on our farm except to make sure we've mulched well right and like covered everything which we did not do well in our first years of farming and continue to struggle with just because you know time and life and farming is hard and whatever right. yeah. so we've got areas on the farm actually our dahlia field right now is essentially just like overrun with bindweed or other areas on the farm that are just like blankets of thistle or whatever it is. And we're finding that with no-till, those, those weeds really like no-till because they're not, <laughs> the, you know, the roots aren't getting disturbed at all. Yeah. So we're like, we're trying to figure out what to do essentially. So we, we, to answer your question about mulching, we never really use anything in our aisles before we would just sort of like let the grass and whatever come up and mow it through the season. And our aisle, our walking paths are really narrow. They're only a foot and a half. So now what we've decided to do is use cardboard 
we're going to spend a lot of time this fall and winter putting down cardboard and then um, leaves or wood chips on the aisles. And then hopefully that will help prevent even more of these really bad perennial seeds from coming in and seeding themselves in places where we don't want them. And then also hopefully it will minimize at least somewhat the amount of hand pulling all that bindweed we have to do out of the dahlias all summer long. So, you know, like at least if the aisles have some cardboard on them, then that's less space we have to deal with. So I'm curious about you having a lot of bindweed in the dahlias. I feel like this is turning into a dahlia podcast, which was, yeah, definitely. <laughs> really. but it's because dahlias are on the mind right now. It yes. is uh, early November when we're doing this recording and we're dealing with the long, hard slog of um, putting the dahlias to bed. Yeah. Um, so it's inevitable they're on our brains. But so with the bindweed, we have a lot of bindweed here too, but I feel like our dahlias are shading out the soil so quickly that we do a weeding or two in the beginning of the season, you know, like in May and June, but then they come up and they make the soil cool um, with their shading. So I feel like the bindweed doesn't become such a problem. Do you, do you think that with time that might happen with yours or you just think that the bindweed is so wicked there? I'm just curious. I, I know bindweed is such a major problem for flower growers everywhere. Yeah. I've ever heard. No, I think you're right. <laughs> it, it never really became an out of control problem, even in areas where we were like, oh God, we forgot to weed this part. You know, like it never right. took down any dahlia plants, but just trying to prevent it from flowering is really what we're trying to get at. So I feel like if we can use more mulching, like, you know, if we can just like at least mulch the aisles and then hopefully, right, like you said, I also think that some of our aisles are a little too wide. Like we, we're not good at measuring around here. So like some of our aisles are not really a foot and a half, more like two or three feet. And then more sunlight can get into that aisle and cause yeah. problems, right? Yeah. So that's part of it too. It's just like making sure that um, we're mulching the aisles that are, are maybe too wide. But then the bindweed is an issue in other spots of the farm too, like in our fall seeding areas. And, you know, then there's plenty of sun. So um, yeah, we're really, really not sure what to do. We tried all kinds of things. And for thistle too, we've tried all kinds of things and nothing really seems to be working. So I need no. to really do some research. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely get asked a lot about controlling weeds in a no-till system in um, perennials. And I don't know if I've gotten lucky and I don't have too much of a problem here or if it's over time, things shift. I'm not sure. I will say that we do have a massive issue with crabgrass. So crabgrass mm -hmm. is... Yeah, we head. don't have that one. Okay. okay, yeah. So maybe it's just each farm has a different thing. One of yeah. my winter projects is to get the book, which I'm now going to forget the name of, but the book where um, it talks about what weeds mean, like what your weeds mean. I'll look that mm -hmm. up and put it in the show notes. But um, I'm going to, over the winter research, you know, what does crabgrass mean? It means something about the ecology of my soil. And if I can change the ecology of the soil, then I should be able, you know, crabgrass is just there because the soil wants to evolve or not. I shouldn't say the soil wants to evolve. Nature wants to evolve. <laughs> the soil is just a, an inert um, foundation for everything else. But the crabgrass is a, is a sign that nature is trying to shift the balance in my soil. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to know what that means. And if I can shift make the shift faster then that means the crabgrass should go away because it has very specific needs so i'm going to see if i can instead of constantly hand weeding crabgrass <laughs> i'm hopeful <laughs> that maybe i can change the ph or add you know i don't know if this is the right thing to add but let's just say add iron to the soil and then suddenly whoop, 
you know, crabgrass doesn't like that environment. So yeah, um, that would be amazing. Yeah. So I'm wondering yeah. if bindweed might be similar. There's something, sure. um, an imbalance, basically. It's there yes. because there's an imbalance and nature's trying to balance. So um, yeah, that, I would love to read that too. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you said about having your plants just have a really strong canopy so that the weeds just don't really have any sunlight is the thing that we found to be most successful. So yeah. for example, we have an area where we have some, we had some moonshine yarrow and I guess it wasn't planted close enough or whatever, but like a ton of thistle came up and now it's just a carpet of thistle. And right next to it, we have these Sheffield mums that have a huge canopy, you know, they're like super thick and there's no thistle at all. So it just show it's like such a stark example of how if you do have a really good canopy, then, you know, whatever is underneath there is just not going to come up. Right. So we, our plan is to mow that thistle down and plant um, Sheffield mums that are already really big and established early in the season and hope that works. So, but, but, you know, finding solutions like that is tricky in annuals. Like I feel like it's a little easier in perennials where you can use landscape fabric or whatever, or, you know, other perennials. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I, and I would love to know your feedback on this, because one of the things I started doing, um, again, uh, my, my journey in no-till is kind of like one wild, crazy experimental ride, which I love about it. <laughs> um, when I first started doing no-till, again, it wasn't by choice. I had no grand plan, but I, um, I had to do really tight spacing that first season because I couldn't get beds ready fast enough because it was sort of like a Hail Mary, like, oh crap, it's raining, it's nonstop raining. I've got these transplants that are root bound. I'm not going to till, so I guess I'll just try to make this bed. You know, I, I read um, Andrew Medford's book, um, and so that was my inspiration. And so I put my plants in super tight spacing that year because I was just like, oh, crap, I just got to get them in the ground. So I did four-inch spacing, which normally I would have done six or eight or 12-inch spacing, um, but pretty much everything went in at four-inch spacing. And I noticed tremendous, beautiful growth, long straight stems, um, and hardly any weeds that I think is because of the canopy that grew up so fast. So what kind of spacing are you doing in your annuals there? Mm. Oh, well, I'd love to know which annuals you felt did best at four inches. I'm really curious. But what we use the Hortonova netting as sort of a spacing guide right. for the team. So like, for example, if I can't be there and there has to be a big planting, I can say do checkerboard today, which is every other square in the netting right. or do we call it deep V. And sometimes we go DB just for fun, <laughs> but that's every other square skipping a row. So it looks okay. like a V and then the other one is just every square in the netting. So of course, if it's that one, it's six inches. Um, okay. And then every once in a while, we'll do two plants per square, three plants per square too. Um, so right. it just depends on what it is to be honest. But um, okay. yeah, I'd say that six inch spacing is probably the most common just because the Hortonova netting makes that easy. Okay. Yeah, I would say try um, tightening up your spacing a little bit if you're having weed issues in certain beds with certain crops. Um, there's not much that I've found that does not like the four inch spacing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that I, I was doing at four inches, which I know is absolutely insane, uh, is foxgloves. Um, and they did well for the season, but then the next year I had a lot of die out and I'm sure that's because they were too crowded and it stayed too wet, you know, in among their um, leaves that had sort of desiccated over the winter. I think there was just way too much moisture in there. Mm, um, so you overwinter your foxgloves? 
That's so yeah, we so, we just grow them as annuals, but I guess we don't. Oh have to, no, do you can do the biennial varieties, um, and we so we actually plant them in the fall and then have early spring blooms as a result. So right, um, we do that. But are you perennializing them for years or with the Dalmatians? We not for years, so for two years. So oh, okay, I see. So then they would stay and they would bloom in the spring. Yep, and stay, then stay in there all and then, year and then come back again the next spring and then we just would, for one more. Okay. Yep. Yep. Got so it. they, they technically have a, like a two years worth of bloom in them if you let Got them, it. but you have to take care of them too. You have to feed them well and, and weed them well. <laughs> mm -hmm, sure. So, um, but yeah, that was one crop that didn't like the four inch spacing, but otherwise uh -huh. we've had, um, like one, one that I know that loved it was straw flowers. Um, Celosia loves that really tight spacing. Um, I have to revisit, um, Lysianthus loves the tighter, the better, it seems. <laughs> so, yes, that um, is, that is news to me. Like that blew my mind when we, <laughs> I got that idea from Shanti at Whipstone that to plant, she did two in every cell and in every other cell, one. So it was like two, then one, then yeah. two, then one. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And they're so much happier because I think what it is, is you have to think about it. They, they have such, let's take Lysianthus as an example. They have such a relatively small root system. And if you think about in the no-till system or just ecological farming, it's all about the roots being able to create a community there underneath the soil. In the soil universe, the roots create this habitat for all the mycorrhizal growth and all the other things down there that are feeding off of the exudates from the roots. So if you have this tiny root system like on Elysianthus, it's it, it's kind of like an island in the middle of an ocean if you put six, eight inches or whatever around it. So there's not a lot of community and sharing of resources there, but then if you make them really tight, they get to um, grow as a unit, which there's, you know, there's strength in numbers no matter what you do. So I don't think there's ever a chance of Lysianthus basically um, competing with each other so to speak <laughs> they're mm -hmm. so they're yeah. kind of such wimpy plants so i find that the tighter they are um the happier they are basically um, oh, you know after we get off the phone i'm immediately going to order, order more lysianthus because i forgot <laughs> about that actually yeah because i can fit thousands of plants into like half a bed basically right. <laughs> it's phenomenal um and then it's also then weeding's not as much of an issue uh because mm -hmm. there's actually some plant material in the bed not just these tiny little rosettes so um yeah and so are you using landscape fabric to plant into at all no no landscape fabric here uh, for perennials for for woodies there's landscape fabric but for annuals nope no landscape fabric it's just too hot um you know you, you know the summers around here the summers are in the 90s or 100 degrees and the humidity so if we have landscape fabric out there our little guys just die so um, yeah we have the same thing yeah nope we plant into cardboard deep mulch system but this year um in 2021 i think we'll shift to just um, mulching with compost and skipping the cardboard, uh, not because the cardboard was bad, but I think we might be, the cardboard was great for two or three seasons to get ahead of everything, so to speak. But now I think we maybe don't need the cardboard. I might regret that and go back to <laughs> cardboard, but, <laughs> yeah. but I'm all about fewer inputs. I'm really, the less inputs, the better in my mind. Um, well, it sounds like you do a lot less weeding than we do. Cause I think we do need to get better at tight spacing and then also just at mulching and, you know, trying to cover the ground better. But we yeah. do like every time we plant, because we, we don't use very much landscape fabric at all either in our annuals. Every time we plant, we have to do at least one very thorough weed weeding yeah. of that bed before 
the canopy is big and sometimes right. too if it takes a long time so yeah and we, we're definitely weeding here still it's not that there's i don't want to give anybody the impression that we don't weed but i do feel like we spend more time weeding our perennials and our woodies than we do our annuals mm, um yeah because you know the, the nasty vines want to grow up into all our woody shrubs, so we have to spend a fair amount of time going around and getting those out. But um, the, the annuals do do pretty well on their own. Um, I am kind of I, I people leave you to believe that no-till farming means you won't have any weeds, um, which I find to be one of the biggest myths out there. Yeah, that is not the case for us. <laughs> not the not case at all. at all. It is yeah. not a magic bullet no, no. Eating. I'm still waiting <laughs> for that to happen, which does beg the question that you're in year five, I'm in year three, so it doesn't get better is what you're telling me. The weeds still stay there. Oh, no. Maybe. No, I think <laughs> it can get better if you're better at making sure that weeds don't flower. Like we... Right. I just, I mean, we talked about this before the interview, but like my, my strengths lie in like business, running the business and yeah. definitely not in farming. I think if I was a stronger farmer, I would make sure that not a single weed flowered, you know, but right. it's just not right. my strength. So I'm yeah. always like, you know, kicking myself after I see like seeds floating through the air, you know? Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yep. Get those yeah. buggers before they go to seed. Otherwise yes. you'll be fighting them forever. For the um, rest of your life. Yep. For the rest of your life, that seed bank <laughs> never goes away. It's uh, so fun. Yeah. Farming is let, fun. Let me ask you one other question about which may relate to the weeds and so forth. Do you, you do cover cropping, right? Yes. Yeah, we do. And then do you do, have you ever tried the roller crimper with the BCS or you're just mowing it down, always choosing to mow? Have you ever, you know, planted into straw or roller crimped um, cover crop of any kind? I have not. I have not used the roller crimper. I'm curious about it. I think at some point we probably will try it, but no, okay. we haven't. It's just hasn't been a priority. Um, yeah, yeah, I've always, yeah. I don't know many flower farmers who are doing rolling crimping. I know that um, Denise and Tony do a sort of a homemade version of roller crimping by just stepping on the, um, on the ride and knock it down. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious to know if there's any flower farmers who are actually engaging in formal roller crimping to, to plant into residue, which I think, you know, not obviously you need to have a big, sturdy, healthy transplant to do that. But I do think there's certain crops that could benefit. So. Oh, definitely. Just... Yeah. My husband is on me to do it. He's, and all of his ideas are typically good. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, but I think most of his ideas seem to be good. Like he was the one who decided we should plant woodies in the first place at the farm. Uh, totally and that, about is, that, so. that is a very good idea for anybody <laughs> yes, exactly. listening who is a new flower farmer. Get your woodies planted as soon as possible. You've got both me and Laura Beth saying yes. um, that that is a really good idea. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a backbone to um, my operation and I know it is to yours. That is yes. really just how you, you, get, you get to the point where you're really professional and you've got volume. It's so hard to get enough volume if you're just doing annuals because you're always waiting for them to come to production. But if you've got woodies, they're there. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. it takes three to five years for them to come to production. But, <laughs> but yeah, once you've got them. Yeah, an investment. <laughs> yeah, once you've got them, yeah. they're great. Um, so let's, uh, I'll, I'll ramble all day as I know you would too. So we'll try to um, stay a little bit on track here before the end of the podcast. Um, are there any flower crops that you have found have been super happy in a no-till system since you grew with tillage and then without? And then conversely, are there any crops that really don't seem to like um, no-till, you know, that you're sort of like, well, I don't know, this one's not working so great. 
Hmm. Okay. You know, honestly, no, I, I don't, I don't think I really have an answer because when we started farming, we were so new at growing cut flowers. Okay. I worked in vegetable farms that all tilled. And then when I moved here, we were doing flowers for like a year and a half before we switched. So I, I don't think I was really experienced enough even to like notice the difference in quality. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I really, okay. I'm not sure. No, I, I thought it was just a curious, like I wanted to make sure to ask, I'm going to make sure yeah. to ask yeah. all my guests so that in case there's something that we're missing. I know that for myself, I find that heat loving crops do not like my particular no-till system. So I have a deep mulch system currently, um, which if you transplant basil or celosia into those, they weep for like three weeks before they're willing to <laughs> stop spouting oh, no. um, okay. because the soil's too cool. They're just too cool. So I had to learn huh. the hard way um, to get the soil heated up before I plant those basically. Uh -huh. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. But if you're using a tarp, if you're just tarping, then it's probably not as um, problematic. So no, yeah, I've never noticed that before. Yeah. And so besides the perennial weeds and uh, inevitably interplanting your uh, current cool annuals with your former cool annuals. Are there <laughs> any other big fails that you feel like you've experienced with no-till growing and that you want listeners to try to avoid? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was at an ASDFG conference where, um, what's the farm in North Carolina where they have great no-till uh, Springforth. Spring yes. Jonathan yeah. Yep. Yes. We went to their farm and they made a comment about how folding silage tarps together almost broke up their marriage. <laughs> and I was like, yes, queen. Like I am amazed that my husband and I are still married after some of the fights <laughs> we've had over how to fold silage tarps. So I think maybe like a mistake would be to not have a system when it comes to folding and storing them. Like you got to figure that out. And then the other thing is we didn't invest in enough silage tarps in the beginning. We were like, we'll just haul them all around. And our farm is big enough that we're, we're getting big silage tarps. Our tarps are 32 by hundred and those are heavy. You know, you cannot move them with one yeah. person. You kind of can with two if they're dry, but if they're really wet, you can't with two. So yeah. we learned we really needed to have a silage tarp for every block in the field that just kind of sits there until it gets pulled out and then it gets pulled back up and it sits there. So oh, that's that was a good something idea. That we so you have you have a, a tarp that just kind of hangs next to a, a segment of the field at all times. Exactly. Yeah. So our tarps will cover four beds. So when they get folded up, they just sit next to those four beds. And when they get used, they're stretched out over those four beds. And I think that can be bad in a sense because the elements will then, of course, batter your tarps more because they're sitting out there all year. But you're saving yourself a lot of time and energy and heartache moving them around. So yeah. um, we typically get like three years out of our tarps before we need to recycle okay. them or you know, okay. whatever, wherever they go. <laughs> So, yeah. And I think yeah. from, from personal experience, hauling tarps around, I'd rather save my back. Um, a back surgery is a lot more expensive. Than a yes, exactly. And there is a place that recycles plastics like that. We actually, this is our first winter taking it there, but there's a place in Pennsylvania that does it apparently. So we're going to try that and that'll make us feel better about leaving it out in the field. here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And here at my farm, I use old billboards actually as um, my tarps. So it makes me feel a little bit better about how I'm sort of recycling by using them. <laughs> so. Yeah, you gave me two of those, by the way. And oh, I use that's them right. All the yeah. time in the greenhouse. Oh, good. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one other question I wanted to ask you, since I'm not sure how many people I, um, I'm going to be talking to on the podcast, will have indoor growing space. Do you treat your beds inside as no-till as well, or do you need to um, turn that soil? 
No. So our, our greenhouse beds are probably like the highest form of our farming. Like we do, we treat them the best. We're the most careful with them. They get the compost every year. Like those are the beds that we really treat like they're queens. So those are no-till as well, but they're much thicker layers of compost and they're way more weed free because we just, you know, we know we have to spend a lot more time in there to get the value out of these expensive spaces. So, so yeah, still no-till. Okay. Okay. Great. Perfect. Um, and then one final topic I wanted to dive into briefly with you is because I know you've got a good handle on employee management and just trying to generally get a crew that's tight and motivated and, um, experience. So tell me a couple pointers, tell me and listeners, a couple pointers about how to run a good crew at your farm. Oh man, I definitely could talk about this all day long. (laughs) Um, Well, I should say I'm kind of a new employer. Like, I mean, I've been running my farm for eight years, but I only had full-time employees for about three years, like full-time year round, essentially almost year round. So I, I don't feel like I'm an expert by any means, but I do think that um, kind of similarly to the, like the skills I bring to florists, I feel like I hopefully am bringing to hiring and keeping my team on too. So um, yeah, it's it's been kind of a learning curve for me because I'm really sensitive. And I think you and I have talked about this. Maybe we're both kind of overshares a little bit sometimes. <laughs> so I want my employees to like know how I'm feeling. And if I'm PMSing, I want them to know that. And, you know, like it's hard to know where the line is between what is okay to share with your employees and what's not. And, and also you want them to feel like, they can trust you and, you know, whatever. But um, what I've learned, I think, or what, what the thing that I've, I've really employed, especially this year during COVID, is that you can't ask your employees how they're doing enough. And, um, you know, I think for me, utilizing the power of the check-in is just like really, it feels really good to know that like anytime I want to, I can be like, let's have a check-in and we'll sit down and be like, how are you feeling about this thing you did? Or offer up a compliment sandwich if I'm noticing that an employee is doing something in a way that could be improved or having an attitude that could be improved kind of repetitively, the check-in is a great place to be like, you know, you're doing great in these ways and this is something you can work on. And I really appreciate you. So, um, so, so a lot of have, check-ins going on. Are those formal sit-downs or is it sort of like over the lunch table, you happen to mention stuff like how formalized is this system? Yeah. So it's, it's semi-formal. Um, I have a rule for myself that if I am having a real strong issue, like a, a very strong reaction to something someone's doing, I don't wait for the check-in. I say it immediately. And the reason for that, like, even if we're in the middle of the work and the reason for that is because I don't want people to ever feel like I could possibly harbor a grudge against them. I want them to trust me to tell them if I'm upset with them right away so that people can trust me, you know? So, right. so that, that doesn't happen at a check-in. But if there's like some more minor problem that's happening, like for example, I'm noticing that an employee is banding the bunches too tight and that takes too long. Like if they're just taking too much time to band bunches, that's something I don't need to say right away. I can save it for the check-in. So we have a formal check-in in July with all my employees. I mean, I have one full-time and several part-times. So like we're not talking like 20 people, you know, so it's easy for, I think for bigger farms, you know, if you were a manager, you might be like, oh, that would take forever. But for me, it's not that many people. So it's fine. So we'll have a big check-in in July. And the idea is to, to give people things to work on. Like you really want to, you know, give people things to aspire to and also to like tell them how great a job they're doing and make sure that there's sort of like everything is good between you. And then in addition to that, every once in a while, like maybe once a month, once every six weeks, I'll call a check-in just kind of informally be like, hey, after lunch today, I want to sit down and talk about some things and we'll do that. That sounds fantastic. I wish more people um, 
did that when I was, you know, an employee, which has been a long time ago now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, something that's been really hard for me is that I never had a boss that I loved. I've never had one. I can't think of a single one. I've had teachers I really loved. And I think my parents are amazing mentors and friends who've been great mentors, but never had a boss, like a formal boss who I thought did a great job. In fact, I think most of them did a terrible job. I'm so sorry. Um, No, that's not true. Maybe one or two. Anyway, you know who you are, who did great. (laughs) But um, but so I feel like I'm shooting in the dark. Like I don't know how to be a good boss because I've never really had a great example of one. So that's been tough. And I think one of the things I wished is that my bosses would like basically be willing to form real relationships with me and like, you know, help me grow as a person. So that's something that I try to to do to the best of my ability here. And I'm always learning, you know. Yeah, I feel like with my employees, one of the best things that I ever did was to be more human with them and stop being such a boss. Like it, it has been hard on time occasion to not cross the line between friends and boss. And so, you know, you got to be careful. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll have a really hard time being um, direct uh, when you need to be a boss. But I do think that it's important to have a, a warm relationship with the people that are working with you. We couldn't do this without their help, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know that that line is, I cross it all the time. The one thing I try to do, the line I try not to cross is like the one rule for myself about what not to talk about is never to talk about any other employee, either past, present or future or anyone else on the farm, like my husband or my landlord, you know, anybody badly in front of my employees, like anyone who they might have to interact with on the farm, like don't talk about that person badly. So not like gossip, basically, no, like, you know. Exactly. Don't gossip about people who are in the farm orbit. That's right. the idea. Yeah. But I can tell you, we gossip about our florists all the time. And it's amazing. <laughs> hey, I'm going to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. It's okay. I know they gossip about us, too. Uh, so one last question about employees is how do you communicate? So it sounds like you have a relatively... not a large team by like maybe some larger farm scale, but for most flower farms are pretty small. And there's a lot of people listening here on the podcast that probably don't even have an employee period, or maybe only have one part-time employee. Um, How do you communicate to your team collectively? Do you have like a team meeting? Are they all working at one time together or are they coming and going if you have part-timers and only one full-time? Like what's the system for communication besides those sit-downs, but like day-to-day or or week-to-week, how are you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it took me some years actually to figure that out. In the the beginning, I was really awkward about it. I had a big whiteboard next to the cooler and I was like, every morning we're going to meet here and we're going to stand around and talk about the day. And I would write it on the whiteboard, you know, I'm going to be super (laughs) organized. And then like days would go by where we were super busy and nothing would get written on the whiteboard and, you know, whatever. Sometimes I like to start work early. So I'm not even there in the morning when people come in. So that didn't really work. In the end, what happened was we kind of fell into this rhythm of what happens every morning. So now when people come into work, they know exactly what to do. And if something's going to be weird, I'll just text them and be like, hey, I'm going to be out in the field early so you guys can fill buckets. Or like, I've already filled buckets, meet me by the truck or whatever it is. Okay. And then I have a list, a harvest list for each person and they cut what's on their list and call me if they have any questions. And I like to, my dad always says, inspect don't expect so go inspect what people are doing instead of expecting that they'll do it perfectly so I like to kind of even though I'm harvesting go over and check and just make sure that their bunch size is what I want it to be or their quality is what I want it to be 
Oh, cool. Um, I like that saying, inspect instead of yeah. inspect. I yeah, that's my that, dad. That's that's very handy. I like it a It's lot. really good. I like it too. And you know what? It's become really helpful in communicating to the whoever is my manager at the time. Right now it's Liz to help her sort of like, you know, inspect or expect when she's team leader. So like yeah. if I'm out and she has to manage essentially her friends or her coworkers on the farm to just remind her to check in with them a lot, it's helpful to have that little catchphrase. Um, yeah, and, I and find, she does great. I find that as uh, I'm an, I have an all female crew and I think maybe you do too. Um, yeah. It's hard for women to check in on women in that way, you know, in a, in a supervisor way, we tend to want to um, be very, nurturing and supportive and so it can feel really hard to say anything um critical so i've always that's one thing i've struggled with and i notice my employees struggle with if one they see one you know they're on a crew for the day and they see somebody doing something wrong and they know it's wrong they'll never say anything because they always are just feeling really anxious about saying anything so we've had yeah, to really work tough. as a team to make it okay to say, hey, this is not negative. This is just, I want to show you, I know that this is a better way to do this, you know? Um, yes. And utilize that compliment sandwich as much as you need to <laughs> all the time. compliment sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, for Sometimes the record, even say. for everybody listening, do you want to explain the compliment sandwich? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. A compliment sandwich is when you might give someone some constructive criticism in the middle of two compliments. So, you know, I might say to my husband, you're doing such a great job helping me on the farm. I really appreciate all the little things you do behind the scenes. And it would be really great if you could like step up with all these greenhouse issues we're having. And I love you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a delicious a sandwich. sandwich. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes if I'm feeling like I just need to get it out, I'll be like, okay, I have a compliment sandwich for you. Are you ready? <laughs> and whoever say. it is will be like, okay. And then, I'll, and then I lay it out. So, Well, one of the things I think is important in there is that you use the word and instead of but, which I find um, people listen for words like but or however, and that's a trigger for them to think, oh, something bad's coming after you mm -hmm. said, I love you, but <laughs> yes. I'm breaking up with you. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> exactly, so exactly. I think that one of the keys to a compliment sandwich is using the word and or some some sort of positive link instead of making setting them up for like that tense moment of, OK, what's wrong? <laughs> right. Yes, so. that does help a lot. Yeah. That's true. I could remember yeah. that more too yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right. Well, Laura Beth, this has been awesome. I've loved learning more about Butterbee Farm, um, located just outside of Baltimore. You have such um, a knack for running a team and for um, growing beautiful flowers and creating relationships with florists. So thank you for sharing all of that knowledge with us. Um, I can't wait for listeners to hear everything that you had to share. You're, you're a wealth uh, font of um, wisdom. So any final... Oh, thanks, Jenny. Oh, you're welcome. Any final um, words of advice, maybe something that um, somebody told you when you were a new grower that's always stuck with you and you, you're glad that they told you that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've gotten so many good pieces of advice. Well, first, I should say this has been really fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, good. I, you know, I love Yay. talking to you, so I really appreciate yeah. any time you have to give. Um, let's see. What's a good thing? I don't know. I mean, I, I think one thing that has been really helpful recently is to just remember that it'll be okay. Like no matter what happens, like if it's a terrible rain, if there's like even 
God forbid, a tornado, if there's a pandemic, you know, like it'll be okay. You're, you'll figure it out. You're smart. You know, you'll figure it out. So it's just something to remember. Right. Resiliency. Yeah. It'll be All fine. You know, just, just keep yeah, checking along. Exactly. Yeah. And farmers always, farmers always hop to their feet before um, too long, even if they got knocked down. So yeah. Even after a good cry. Yeah, there should always be a good cry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been so much fun. Um, I, uh, I thank you. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been so fun. Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.